degree of difficulty dials is up, you know, today. And so when your degree of difficulty dial is up, then you need to be more rigorous. I think a lot of what needs to be done in the negative world is stuff maybe we should have been doing all along, but we could kind of get away with it uh, mm. in the positive, not doing it in the positive negative world, hmm. like mortifying sin. I look at Jesus's conclusion to the Sermon on the Mount, where he talks about the house built on the rock versus the house built on the sand. The house built on the rock is the person who hears his words and does them. <laughs> this idea that we actually have to do what Jesus <laughs> said, we don't like to talk about that in the evangelical church because we don't want to be legalistic. We don't want to have a lot of rules. We want to talk about grace. We want to talk about the gospel. You know, but Jesus himself said, if you want to survive the storm, you need to be doing what I'm saying. Uh, and so we we actually need to be, put a lot of focus on things like that that we did not before. Yeah. And maybe it wasn't as obvious whose house was built on the rock or the sand uh, because the storm hadn't yet. Well, now the storm's coming, and we don't know how big it's going to be. We don't know where exactly it's going to hit. But if the storm hits you, that's when you'll find out when the when the foundation is. It's like the investor Warren Buffett, you know his his quip about uh, it's only when uh, the tide goes out that we see who's been swimming naked. <laughs> Welcome to Grounded. I'm Steve Hartland, pastor here at Cornerstone Community Church in Joppa, Maryland. And I have a guest today. His name is Aaron Wren, by the way. If you're going to Google him, it's R-E-N-N. There's no W on the front. I tried W a bunch of times and didn't get you, Aaron. It wasn't working. So let me give you a little bit of bio about Aaron. Earlier in life, he had a career in management and technology consulting and in advising major corporations. Following that, Aaron had a second career in urban policy as a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute for Policy Research. Currently, Aaron is a writer and consultant and is co-founder and senior fellow at American Reformer. You can find them at AmericanReformer.org. I have them on my bookmarks bar, by the way, so I can look oh, every couple of days and see what's new and uh, check it out. So um, Aaron's a uh, writer and co-founder there. His focus is on helping conservatives and the American church rise to the challenge of finding success in the 21st century. And just before I invite Aaron to say hi to you, let me also mention his work has appeared in or been cited in a number, quite a number of leading global publications, including, maybe you've heard of a few of these, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Atlantic, the Washington Post, the Economist, the, Atla uh, the Guardian, Financial Times, Real Clear Politics, Politico, Bloomberg, the Boston Globe, and many, many, many more. Not a bad list, huh? How did you find well, all those? <laughs> I did a little poking around. So, uh, Aaron, thanks for joining me today. How are you? Good. Thanks for having me on. Very good. So uh, just give us a little more bio, like where are you born and raised and are you married? Do you have family? Stuff like that. Yes, I was uh, born and raised in, uh, well, I was born in Louisville, Kentucky, but I was raised in Southern Indiana in a rural community. I lived about uh, four miles outside of a town of 50 people or so. Uh, so I grew up in, in rural uh, America. Then after college, I moved off to Chicago and spent most of my adult life living in big cities. So I lived in Chicago and in, in New York City. I lived in Manhattan for five years. And then uh, I am married. Uh, married. I have a five-year-old son. And my wife and I moved back here to Indianapolis uh, at the end of 2019. Since we're both from Indiana, it's closer to family, lower cost. It's a much better uh 
platform, you know, if you want to call it that, for me to do my work. And then just for personal reasons, it's been good to be here as well. And very providential that we got out of Manhattan right ahead of the pandemic because that wow. was a disaster. Yes. Yeah. The other thing I'll just say is uh, people should make sure to sign up for my newsletter at AaronWren.com. And that'll make sure you get all the work that I do because it's all summarized there. Thank you for that. And I'm sure after the talk, they're going to want to. So uh, our topic for today, it's going to meander a little bit, but basically in your writing and in your talks, uh, you talk about these three worlds, three kind of recent worlds, um, the negative world. The, I'm sorry. First, it was the positive world, then the neutral world, then and now the negative world and how Christians relate to culture in those different periods. So we'd like to hear all about that. Would you start us off with uh, positive world, please? Sure. Really, to go back to the 50s is where we need to start. Up until the 50s, America had essentially been a sort of Protestant normative society. In the 50s, they still had what we call the Protestant establishment. So it was basically a Christian country in a sense, and specifically Protestant Christian. Uh, you know, the 50s were the high watermark of church attendance. About half of all adults attended every week. There was prayer in school, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Starting in the 1960s, with different social upheavals that happened there, sexual revolution, et cetera, uh, the status of Christianity in society went into an extended period of decline that stays with us to today. Uh, and uh, this period of decline from, say, 1964 to uh, today, I divide into three different segments that I call the positive, the neutral, and the negative world. Uh, and we could talk through those. So the positive world is the period from, say, 1964 to 1994. And although this is a period of decline for Christianity, I want to make it clear that church attendance is decline, Christian no moral norms are being called into question, you know, Christianity and society has been slowly ev being evicted from the public square and from institutions like schools. Nevertheless, society still views Christianity by and large positively. Mm -hmm. uh, at least in sort of an official sense, to be known as a good church-going man makes people want to hire you, makes them you know want to vote for you, etc. And sort of Christian moral norms are still the basic norms of society, and you get in trouble if you if you violate them. So that's the positive world. I could just describe the other two, I think, very easily if you if you'd like. Sure, please do. Yeah, uh, you know, by 1994, this period of decline hit sort of a tipping point. And we reached a, an era that I call the neutral world, in which Christianity is no longer seen as a positive, but it's not really seen as a negative either. It's essentially one lifestyle choice among many in a sort of pluralistic society, a pluralistic public square. And this period lasted from around 94 to 2014. I dated it to 94 for a variety of reasons. You probably could have dated it to 1989, which was the fall of the Berlin Wall and the end of the Cold War. I definitely see this as sort of linked to the end of the Cold War. But 94 is when the big city started coming back. It's when the religious right started to run out of gas a little bit, uh, kind of the old moral majority movement. And we entered sort of a new phase. And so uh, Christianity, again, not seen positively or negatively. It would, might be a situation where we would uh, meet and I'd say, I'm a Christian. You'd say, great, I'm a vegan. Let's talk. Hmm. That sort of thing. And Christian moral norms sort of had a residual force in society. And then in 2014, we hit a second tipping point where Christianity came to be perceived negatively by official culture and by society. So today, to be known as a Bible-believing, church-going Christian, 
does not help you get a job in Silicon Valley. Quite the opposite. Uh, in fact, it's going to reduce your social status in elite society to be known as a particularly devout Christian. And Christian moral norms are expressly repudiated and, in fact, are now seen as one of the primary threats to the new public moral order in our society. And so although this, what I call positive, neutral, and negative world, covers this period of decline from, say, 64 to the present, nevertheless, the negative world in particular represents something truly unprecedented, where for the first time in the 400-year history of America— Christianity really is on the outs, really is disfavored in ways that it was not previously. It was always the case, perhaps, that many of the elites kind of really were not really into Christianity. They thought it was superstitious. You know, people like Thomas Jefferson were not especially into Christianity. A lot of the founding fathers, you know, what exactly was their faith? Uh, But they at least felt obligated to to pay public lip service to it. And even in the mid-century era, uh, which was sort of the high watermark of liberal Protestantism. Yes, it may have been liberal Protestantism, sort of the mainline Protestantism we know, but it was still very much uh, a faith that people held and provided values that animated people's lives and institutions and how the country was run. Uh, and that's simply no longer the case today. Yeah, very much not the case today. So let's talk about this negative world then, this this period that we are in. And... Um... How, how do Christians relate to the culture in the negative world? So it was easy in the positive world. It was not too hard in the neutral world. It's a whole different thing in the negative world. Right. And uh, specifically, you might want to talk about some other things first, but I'd like us to get to that topic of cultural insurgency. Yeah. Um, but how do we relate to the world? Yes, yeah, so it's very key to understand that the positive, neutral, and negative world are about how culture views Christianity. We're very used to talking about how the church should view the culture, the church should engage the culture. This is about how the culture views the church. During that period, there were various strategies that evangelicals used to try to respond to the different eras of decline. And I think evangelicalism, as we know it, sort of is a product of this era of decline. If you go back to the 50s, we restore still a mainline dominant society. But for whatever reason, the main lines could not adapt to the decline of Christianity, and they have sort of been on a slow decline to zero, you know, if you if you project out on the future, uh, which you might have thought is the old kind of uh, quote-unquote backwoods fundamentalists. Uh, they, you know, were strong. They sur- survived strong in their faith, but they really were very limited in their reach. It was evangelicals who proved particularly adaptable to these cultures. And adaptability, you know, to the culture has always been, I think, kind of the, the strength and the weakness of, of evangelicalism in a sense. But in the 70s, there were essentially two strategies that came out to the fore uh, among evangelicals about how to respond to the culture, the declining culture. One group looked at it and said, things are going the wrong way. There's you know abortion, prayers out of the schools, there's a sexual revolution, and we're going to fight back. And this was the culture war uh, what I call the culture war group, or what we now know as the religious right. This was people like Falwell or Pat Robertson. And what they said is, we're going to mobilize politically in order to take back the country. So we're going to see this period of decline, and we're going to view it as a threat and fight back against it. That was really very powerful, I think, throughout the positive world, although it is, of course, still with us. All of these strategies are still with us. Another strategy that emerged in the positive world is what I call secret sensitivity. Max, I, I didn't coin that phrase, obviously. Uh, 
Uh, but this is, you know, pioneered by people like Bill Hybels uh, at Willow Creek Church in suburban Chicago or Rick Warren at Saddleback Church, although he actually started in the 80s, I believe. And this was essentially an attempt to adapt the style of church to appeal to people who were starting to abandon the church, starting to not go to it. So a guy like Hybels went door to door in suburban Chicago asking people why they didn't go to church. And then he designed a church that would stylistically appeal to the people who were starting to not go to church. So it's informal. It abandons a lot of the old stodgy liturgies and denominational distinctives. You know, it's contemporary music. Uh, this preaching is very therapeutic, conversational, you know, et cetera. That sort of thing that we all know. And that, again, continues to today. Uh, you know, I think the classic non-denominational suburban megachurch is what we're talking about here. Mm-hmm. And this is really the evangelical mainstream to a great extent. As we move into the neutral world, uh, we run into another strategy I call cultural engagement. I'd like to hear a good bit about this one, if you don't mind. The, yeah, okay. The whole thing about uh, being nuanced and so on. Yeah, so I think there are a couple different ways we could look at the cultural engagement model. One is that it's a seeker sensitivity for the cities. Hmm. Uh, so cultural engagement was really a, an urban phenomenon, I think, to a great extent. Uh, the people we associate with it are people like, say, Tim Keller. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, but you, you could, you know, there's Andy Crouch. You could think of him in this category. It's sort of upscale, educated, upper middle class Christians, more based in college towns, elite cities, or mm-hmm. high end kind of suburbs of those elite cities, and uh, they tend to be, um, you know. So again, this was. Coming about in an era when the cities were coming back, you know, until Giuliani became mayor of New York in 94, you know, New York was a war zone. The early 90s, uh, basically Time Magazine was still writing cover stories that, you know, the rotting of the Big Apple. It's like it's going, it's going down the tubes. Well, then the cities completely turned around. Crime rates collapsed. People started streaming in. And one way to look at cultural engagement is just as Bill Hybels and people of that nature had cracked the code on reaching the baby boomer suburbanizing population of of the 70s and the 80s and even into the 90s, the sort of emerging rising suburban class, that the cultural engagers sort of did the same thing for the urban people, that they figured out what do they want to see stylistically, what's going to resonate with them linguistically. Uh, So again, their style is often sometimes similar to the suburban megachurches, but there's more variety. There's some that are more liturgical and formal and traditional. There are some that are sort of hip, cool. There are some that are very like artsy. Uh, they tend to prioritize issues you know, around uh, justice and poverty and things of that nature. The language is therapeutic, uh, similar to uh, the you know, uh, seeker sensitivity movement, but it's sort of articulated maybe in a more sophisticated urban way. And this was essentially a way to create a church that was going to appeal to the urban people, how to get them in the the door. A second way to look at it is as essentially the opposite of the culture war. Whereas the culture warriors maybe believed that they could fight and take back the culture, by the 90s it was very clear that was not going to happen. And so on the cultural engagement, it's like, why spend all our time fighting with people when instead we could sit down and have a conversation? Let's take advantage of this new pluralistic public square and just sit down and confidently and in a language that is going to resonate with the public, articulate the truths of Christianity, apply them to the modern day, because we think that these truths have a lot of relevance even today and could resonate with those people. 
So you can sort of look at it, you know, I think in a couple ways, either as seeker sensitivity for the city or as essentially the opposite of the culture war approach to some extent. Hmm. In fact, would it be fair to say that maybe the people they warred with were the fundamentalists to their right? Well, I, I think that's true today. I don't think that was true originally. Hmm. I mean, if you go back and look at a lot of these people, um, you know, I don't see uh, a lot of hostility towards the religious right. Maybe there was some, you know, I was not as plugged in all throughout this process. But where I do think that one of the things they adopted, because cities are, of course, much more leftist, much more uh, liberal than the suburbs, is they cultivated a very apolitical approach. Mm-hmm. So, like, we don't do we don't do politics. I don't endorse politicians. We talk about the gospel. We don't talk about politics. Mm-hmm. Uh, they also sort of downplayed some of these traditional religious right culture war flashpoints like abortion and sexuality. They just didn't talk about it all that much. Uh, they, they tried to talk about other things more. Uh, that's not yeah. to say they never talked about it, uh, but they, they sort of de-emphasized the things that some of the culture warriors had emphasized. But I see them as mostly doing their own things, sort of distancing themselves uh, a little bit from the culture war model, but not necessarily fighting with the culture war people. Hmm. The right. culture war, the fight against the culture warriors, uh, and of course the culture warriors you know, being very critical I think of these cultural engagement types came about, I think, largely during the candidacy of Donald Trump for president. Right. And, you know, evangelicals were a huge voting block for him. Evangelicals voted 80% for him. And uh, a number of these urban types essentially uh, kind of broke their political silence, if you will, and really denounced Trump and saw this evangelical embrace of Trump as essentially compromising their witness and other things. And just as, you know, Trump led to, has led to tremendous divisions within society at large and within the Republican Party, et cetera, that was sort of mirrored within evangelicalism. Mm-hmm. And it's not entirely uh, mm-hmm. Donald Trump's fault. Uh, in 2014, uh, a liberal journalist, Matthew Iglesias, coined this term. I don't think he coined it, but he wrote a big article about it in Vox called The Great Awakening. And clearly in Obama's second term, there was this massive uh, kind of far left progressive uh, rise that essentially captured the institutions of society, all based around wokeness on all the dimensions of race, sexuality, you know, et cetera. And it's become essentially the official ideology of the country. And that has produced, again, a lot of polarization in society, but you know, also within the church. So I think Trump and wokeness which came about roughly at the same time. You could maybe even argue that without kind of the wokeness, Trump would have struggled a little bit to get traction. Hmm. I think Trump is definitely, Trump as a president is definitely a product of the negative world. We could maybe talk about that more. Sure. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I date the, the this sort of intra-evangelical conflict seems more a product of the negative world era than some of these previous eras when people were sort of doing their own thing without necessarily attacking other people. Again, my history there is not as strong, perhaps, as, I, as I'd like to make that statement authoritatively, but that's basically uh, you know, my thought. And I think this is one of the implications of what's happened with the negative world. We've had the negative world. Uh, there really has not been a strategy that's emerged from evangelicals for dealing with it. And there's essentially been a doubling down on these old strategies, and these old strategies are somewhat deforming under the pressures of the negative world and this deformation, one of the 
consequences of that has been intra-evangelical conflict and realignment. I would say so. So you want to talk about David French at all? Where does he fit in right here? Well, David French is an example of the realignment uh, that's been going on, uh, both politically and religiously. You know, French is both a movement conservative person uh, and an evangelical, and you would have classified him probably as a culture warrior uh, in the past. And he, for whatever reason, took great umbrage to Donald Trump and, uh, you know, became very critical of him. He was, there was even talk that they might recruit, some conservatives might recruit him to run for president <laughs> against Trump. Uh, they ended up with Evan McMullen instead, but the people were literally saying, let's get David French to run. I think in the hopes that he would peel off enough votes so that Hillary would win. I never heard uh, that. But, did, did French agree to that? You know, he, you know, he did not run, um, hmm. but you know, it was, it was kind of, there's sort of a draft French movement, if you will. Hmm. But he has certainly signed on with the most radical anti-Trump, never Trump factions of conservatism. Hmm. And again, uh, why that is, we can we can debate. Uh, you know, I don't have a, a I'm not going to psychoanalyze him. But this happened with a number of people. There were a number of people who simply said, "Trump, I cannot abide Trump," and uh, therefore, you know, I'm going to you know, leave the Republican Party. I'm going to leave conservatism. We're going to, you know, start this Never Trump movement, et cetera. And you know, he's part of that whole thing. And so that certainly involved his reaction to Trump. And then, uh, you know, again, perhaps because uh, all the evangelicals were so supportive of Trump, he has just over time become more and more and more hostile towards uh, conservative evangelicals. And it's, you know, it's like every Sunday when his column comes out, it's like, wh who's he going to attack this time? Yes. Uh, sort of thing. If you haven't been attacked by David French, it's like, what are you doing wrong? Sort yeah. of thing. But I also think there's part of it that, you know, it's the nature of the Internet you know, David French has also been the recipient of enormous quantities of hate. Hmm. I think one of the things that that definitely got him, it may have been, I don't know if it was 2014 or 2015, uh, but these alt-right uh, people uh, started posting memes, uh, you know, of one of his family members that were just quite uh, racist Ooh. and dreadful. And I'm sure that that uh, definitely did not uh, incline him towards any sort of you know, post-liberal vision. Mm -hmm. uh, and those people were very aligned with Trump. So I'm sure that had an impact on it. And, uh, you know, he's also received enormous, uh, enormous amounts of uh, vilification as well. So, you know, the problem with the internet is it sort of magnifies all these things and, and you get it. And, and then probably the, um, I think a great example of that is the Sorab Amari uh, feud, which let's be clear, Sorab Amari started it. He wrote this article for First Things called Against David Frenchism. He, I read that. He was very shrewd and strategic. Everybody loves mm. a fight, right? When there's two kids start a fight on the playground, everybody comes running by essentially personalizing what he disagreed with as David Frenchism. It sort of created this feud that really made Sorab Amari a household name uh, in conservatism, which he had not been before. He was sort of a, a, a not an invisible figure, but certainly a more minor figure from a public persona. Uh, and then certainly David French did not like that at all. I mean, if somebody writes an article in a major conservative publication saying you're the bad guy, naturally, you're not going to like that. So, you know, you can't say that David French's uh, uh, reactions and changes have been entirely a result of things going on inside of David French's head. 
there have been external factors operating on him as well. Fair enough. Hey, let me shift gears a little bit and let's talk yeah. about this cultural insurgency. So here we are in negative world mm-hmm. for evangelicals, man, the, the ground has really shifted just very rapidly. All the, uh, all the high points of culture and power and politics and so on have been, uh, well, have been captured, uh, except oddly enough, the current Supreme court, um, uh, that might be a lagging measure of uh, what we used to be. But anyway, so so what do we do now? What do you recommend to evangelical Christians? I'd also like to hear you speak to, I'm a pastor. What do you recommend to evangelical pastors? What do we do right now in this unique time that we're yeah. in? So can you talk about that? Well, I would say we are in an unprecedented era, and we need to adopt an exploration mindset in the sense that it's not going to be as easy as it was in the 70s to just design a sort of business school strategy approach to reach an underserved market or a hard-to-reach market or something like that. You know, this is a more difficult situation. It's very fluid. It's very dynamic. Things are changing radically all the time. Nobody thought on January 1, 2015, that it was even conceivable Donald Trump would be the next president of the United States. Mm -hmm. It was not a, a thought in anybody's head. Nobody thought this pandemic was going to happen. Uh, Probably a lot of people weren't preparing for a Ukraine war. So this world is very dynamic. And this idea that we're just going to be able to sit back and design a perfect strategy is simply not going to happen. So we have to be Hmm. explorers, in a sense, uh, as we navigate this. There's going to be a lot of trial and error, a lot of experimentation. So I'm not looking for a master strategy, you know, to to win the war, uh, so to speak. That's helpful. There, but you know what I would say for for pastors, uh, there are a few things. One is clearly the pressure on pastors has gotten more and more intense. If you look at the survey data about more pastors looking to quit, uh, things are not good. A lot of seminary enrollments are way down. I'm hearing that there's a big shortage of pastoral candidates, uh, conservative pastoral candidates in some of these denominations, which is really interesting. Uh, people are hearing it from both sides in these churches. It's like, think about masking in in a church. Should you have masks or no masks during COVID? Should you meet or not meet? What should the rules be? No matter what you do, you are going to get attacked by somebody. Now, there may be a few churches that are so uniformly anti-mask or something mm-hmm. that you wouldn't get it, but you know, uh, it, it's really, really been difficult for a lot of pastors the last few years. And so I think I would suggest that we need to look at structuring pastoral ministry to be more resilient to pressures, meaning, uh, you know, you should probably need to be careful about uh, going into the ministry if you can't be assured that, for example, you're going to have enough financial backing so that you're, you can't, you know, that you're at risk. Imagine this, you're a pastor, a lot of these young pastors, they come in, they're paid dirt. They have a wife and kids. If they displease their congregation and get fired, they're in trouble. Now they're really in trouble. And so we need to really think about that. And uh, I think there needs to be more focus on, uh, you know, the, assuming, assuming, you know, uh, ensuring that you get paid well <laughs> for the work that you're doing, mm. or maybe looking at being bi- bivocational. Uh, yes. Uh, C.R. Wiley, the pastor of uh, this conference mm-hmm. that I, I uh, ran into some of your people at, 
he has been a real estate investor for many years, you know, owning rental properties mm. and he was good in construction. He was able to fix them up. Having some rental income means that his entire livelihood is not dependent. And so therefore you're not fearful about speaking out, saying the truth, saying what you believe, saying yeah. the hard things. Yeah. So I think looking at your financial structure of your ministry is going to be very important, uh, which may frankly reduce the supply of candidates even further as people who, mm. you know, can't, can't structure a financially successful ministry. Maybe they're going to have to be more church mergers, uh, things of that nature. Uh, I think you also need to look at the personal characteristics of people going into ministry. Things like being able to be more of a caring pastoral type, maybe still very important, but being more uh, resilient under conflict, someone who's just comfortable with conflict, yes. comfortable with difficult situations, someone who's just really able to handle that kind of pressure well, that's going to be more important. Some people just are conflict averse. You know, I'm kind of conflict averse, to be quite honest. <laughs> I don't enjoy it. I don't mm. like it. And so maybe I wouldn't be a very good guy to be a pastor on that account. But someone who just has the psychology of thriving in a higher conflict environment is important. Uh, and then having yeah, well a said. good network of having good networks of support, uh, good relationships with your elders, peers, really strong peer networks. It's going to be very important to people. So there's a lot, I think, that needs to be done to shore up ministry. The degree of difficulty dials is up, you know, today. And so when your degree of difficulty dial is up, then you need to be more rigorous. I think a lot of what needs to be done in the negative world is stuff maybe we should have been doing all along, but we could kind of get away with it uh, mm. in the positive, not doing it in the positive negative world, hmm. like mortifying sin. I look at Jesus's conclusion to the Sermon on the Mount where he talks about the house built on the rock versus the house built on the sand. The house built on the rock is the person who hears his words and does them. <laughs> this idea that we actually have to do what Jesus <laughs> said, we don't like to talk about that in the evangelical church because we don't want to be legalistic. We don't want to have a lot of rules. We want to talk about grace. We want to talk about the gospel. You know, But Jesus himself said, if you want to survive the storm— you need to be doing what I'm saying. Uh, and so we we actually need to be, put a lot of focus on things like that that we did not before. Yeah. And maybe it wasn't as obvious whose house was built on the rock or the sand uh, because the storm hadn't yet. Well, now the storm's coming, and we don't know how big it's going to be. We don't know where exactly it's going to hit. But if the storm hits you, that's when you'll find out when the, when the foundation is. It's like the investor Warren Buffett you know, his, his quip about uh, it's only when uh, the tide goes out that we see who's been swimming naked. <laughs> so I think there's things we know we need to be doing. You know, we know we need to be serious and all that on our faith, but we've sort of been able to get away with being lax. Tim Keller talks about what he calls the mushy middle. And what's really changing to, today is that the mushy middle is going away. And now mm. you've got secular yes. people and you know, very serious Christians. That's going to be the increasing divide and sort of the, the lukewarm Christians, the people who went to church because that was sort of what you were expected to do or because that's what you grew up in, all those little kind of cultural markers, that, that's kind of going away as the cost of that goes up. And so we have to figure out what category we're going to fall into. And so I think in every respect, we're just going to have to elevate our game. Yeah, I think it's kind of encouraging in that regard that maybe the church now is a little is a lot more like the first century church. They were embattled. 
They were few. And you, you generally didn't join that mob unless you were serious about the faith, unless you were ready to suffer and so on. So uh, maybe it's more like that now. And, you know, looking back at them, they did a pretty good job. They did a pretty good job of reaching and penetrating their world. So maybe these are good times for the church. But There uh, is a lot that's different about our situation, though, because one of the great kind of disputes about this negative world is this fixation on the idea of persecution. And some people like to say, well, you know, Christians are now being persecuted in America. And others are saying that's ridiculous. Look at what people are suffering in India or in Africa. Look, you know, people who are being killed for the faith. Uh, you know, you shouldn't talk like that. It's ridiculous. But I think what it misses is that the nature of modern technological industrial society puts new and different kinds of pressures on Christians and other people that people of previous generations never had to face. So I would say, yes, it's true. There is no persecution of Christians in America. Now, you know, maybe there's some obscure cases somewhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, you compare it to Paul. You know, Paul was shipwrecked. He was beaten with rods. He was stoned. All these terrible things happened to him. He was thrown in prison. All these physical trials that he had to endure. We have nothing like that. On the other hand, out of every single thing that Paul suffered, nobody ever took away his ability to make a living as a tent maker. Hmm. That is the pressure that can be brought to bear. Hmm. Today's society. Yes. When we are uh, no longer self-sufficient, as we may have been in an agricultural era, in which there is technological surveillance capitalism, uh, as one academic writer described it, and it's very easy to manipulate uh, the system algorithmically to punish you, much as China does with their social credit score system. Mm-hmm. We could easily have that sort of system. We have an emerging system here. Yes. You know, it's known you have a social credit score on these systems. Whether you know it or not, these social media companies understand what you believe, what you post, all of that stuff. It's well known. And, you know, you face consequences, subtle economic and social pressures being brought to bear on people that in the past would have been very tough to bring to bear on people. But now they can be. And so let's not sell our situation short just because we're not being thrown in jail like they are in China. We are under, in some respects, more subtle and difficult to combat pressures uh, there. And that's, that's why the, the analogies sort of break down a little bit. I do think there are things to learn from the early church, but their situation was also quite different from us. And we need to think a lot about uh, today's world. And if my writings, you know, I'm not a pastor, I'm not a theologian. You know, I come from a consulting background, so a lot of what I do is try to provide tools and insights to help people navigate, make decisions. That's fundamentally what a consultant does. And I talk a lot about the conditions of modernity because that's very underappreciated in today's society. Uh, the fundamental transformation that occurred in the late 19th and early 20th century as we had a industrialization of society you could no longer live as a uh, self-sufficient farmer or something of that nature. You are now dependent on the marketplace for your employment, for goods and services. Much of, for example, what the household used to do in terms of you know, social safety net, elder care, education, economic production, that stuff's all gone. 
that's either now provided by the marketplace or by the state. Hmm. And so one reason that the family is fragile today is that the family doesn't do anything. You know, in the early 1800s, the family did a lot <laughs> because we didn't have a lot of services. Well, today, you really don't need a family because of this vast array of things that you could procure through the state or through the market. And that's helped fragilize the, fa the family. And also the, the essentially the, 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 I also talk about the, the rise of managerialism in this environment, how as you get giant cities, giant government, giant corporations, mass technology, it creates a need for a new class of managers, bureaucrats, technicians who have essentially taken control of our society. And they have their tentacles into every aspect of what you do. And even into your family, they've got, they've got tentacles into your family. So, uh, you know, if you, you know, yes, we have all this wonderful medicine and we don't just have to keep a pair of people at home, you know, but if your kid falls and skins his knee and you have to take him for stitches or something like that, you're going to get 20 questions about whether you're an abuser, right? You've mm -hmm. got like an army of state agents ready to essentially take your kid from you at any point if they decide they don't like you. And you can say that's, you know, over, uh, overwrought, but in fact, they had tremendous, tremendous power in the hands of bureaucrats over every aspect of your life. And this, I, I just mentioned these in highlighting really just to show that the conditions of modernity are not well understood by people. And that makes it very hard for us to respond to things because we have not thought, we spend a lot of time in, you know, classical Christian education. It's a big one. Oh, we gotta have like, we gotta study the classics and study the Greek and Roman philosophy or study logic and rhetoric. And I, I'm all in favor of that. I'm a hundred percent supportive of that. But ancient classical culture did not have a mass media society, a social media society. How does information dissemination and control work today versus the way it worked then? You know, if you don't understand the ability of mass media to control public opinion and how that works, you know, you're really, all the formal logic from Aristotle in the world is not going to save you in this world. So I think there needs to be much more attention paid to the conditions of modernity than is currently paid by the church, which seems very uninterested in it for the most part. Hmm, very helpful. Hey, let me shift gears a little bit. And uh, one of the things you talk about and write about is uh, you suggest that in this negative world, we make allies with the civilian population. Can you talk about that for us, please? Sure. You know, I, I'm known as someone who's sort of maybe a critic of the cultural engagement model. Uh, and so some people have assumed that from that, I must be a culture warrior. But I, I believe the culture war model, as we've traditionally understood it, is increasingly obsolete. This idea that you can simply vote your way out of this problem and that we're in. Uh, not that voting is not important, but it's just we're never going to achieve through direct political confrontation a lot of these objectives. And so, um, you know, I, I favor a model that I call cultural insurgency, which if you uh, – I don't have time to unpack it completely here, and I'll write more about it in the future. Uh, although it's rhetorically uh, maybe edgier than culture war, may sound more extreme, you can almost think of it as winsomeness well understood. <laughs> hmm. You know, and this idea is we need to focus on – uh, not trying to go out and directly confront the powers of the culture necessarily, which in most cases will simply destroy your life. Hmm, right. You could literally, if you work for a Fortune 500 company, 
and are publicly known to have simply said all lives matter, there's a very good chance you'll be fired. People have been fired for that from big companies like Cisco. So just walking into directly into the line of machine gun fire is not wise. Hmm. Don't, don't recommend it. So what I think we need to be doing is, again, building local communities. Maybe this is more like Rod Rear's Benedict option. We need to be building local communities, networks, and institutions to sustain our communities uh, at, the imme- at immediate scale. That's necessary but not sufficient. I'm never going to say that we can rebuild a com- country from the bottom up like that through these sort of neo-Tocquevillian solutions. But yeah, if you don't have a strong local network, uh, if you don't have strong local churches, if you don't have uh, you know businesses that generate income in your community, all that sort of stuff, you know, you're a much uh, bigger challenge. And we also need to focus on basically being uh, winning at what I call the moral level of war. You know, which is to say, people need to see us as the, the people with the highest integrity, the the most competent at what we're doing, uh, who have the best ideas who reject the most insane parts of today's world. And that people say, hey, these Christians uh, are people that we like uh, much more so than this mainstream society, which is really not serving our interest, which it is not. What you might call regular people or the average person or non-Manhattanites, they'll they'll get that. They'll like that about us. Yeah, it's like, what I basically say is, look, you know, we're not back in like, again, the 70s where you could say, oh, the average man on the street, Nixon's silent majority. They all think like we do. And so in essence, by politically mobilizing and being very vocal, you're like a vanguard movement or something that all these people are just going to fall in line with you. Or this idea that you can go knock on people's doors and ask them why they don't go to church. I mean, if you did that today, people would think you were crazy. Like, who is this wacky guy asking me why I don't go to church? I mean, it's... And so... Today, like the normal guy doesn't go to church. He's never really thought much about it. He just wants to like hang out in his suburban house and grill burgers and brats in the backyard, watch the NFL, enjoy his kind of pathetic little creature comforts, which, you know, we all do. That's us. This is America. We're a consumer society. We like to consume. And so we need to think about how do we make ourselves appealing to that person, or at least not unpopular with that people. And so when you engage in a lot of really provocative um, actions and rhetorics that turn off the average person, Hmm. that's unhelpful. And I think our society sort of rewards extreme, edgy people. That's the nature of social media. It's just like I was talking earlier about this French Amari feud. You know, the more extreme you are, the bigger the bombs you throw, the more high conflict you are, the more clicks you get, the more followers you get the more subscribers on Substack you get. And so that's, that's, the, that's the road to riches today. But ultimately, you're just going to ghettoize yourself in a ditch. And the niche might be quite large, uh, but it alienates the mainstream. And I'm not so worried about alienating like the global or national mainstream, but at least in your community, you don't want people to think you're like unhinged lunatics. Right? Hmm. So when you're, let me just tell you what it's like. So what, what would be an example of something that turns people off? I use example of open carry. This is not concealed carry, you know, like say, I'm, I'm going to carry, I'm going to carry my concealed weapon with me. I've got my permit, but I'm going to carry that. I'm talking about open carry, which a lot of people do, where you walk around carrying an AR-15 or you got like a gun. So, I mean, this turns people off. This is not an, this is an image we associate with Lebanon or something like that. It's mm-hmm. not an image we, we, that makes you feel good. So those sorts of things turn people off. You know, if you're the unhinged person screaming 
at the school council, or, you know, you know, the school board right. meeting, you know, and you're really conducting yourself in a very, in a manner that does not appear professional and all that, then, you know, you don't, uh, you know, people start looking at that and going, what's going on? And so I think, you know, one reason I think people have turned to so much turn to Ron DeSantis over Donald Trump is precisely because Ron DeSantis seems like an adult and he actually demonstrates that he can accomplish, he demonstrates that he can accomplish things. And, you know, who knows what his, you know, you know, future looks like, but people are like, okay, this is Trump without the baggage. This is a Trump. This is a guy who, if he were elected, could actually govern. Uh, but so again, I'm not saying I'm like endorsing Ron DeSantis or something like that. It may discover that DeSantis can't actually get elected because he doesn't, he lacks the charisma of a Trump. But this idea that, you know, demonstrating that you're the kind of people, person, people would want running the city, want running the state, want running the country. Do they want to put you and, and I in charge or do they want, are we going to look like clowns? Are we just going to look like provocateurs, court jesters who may have a role to play in society, but you're never somebody that people want to give you the keys to the car and drive. Hmm. And so I think, I, you know, I, I keep coming back to the example of the Quakers in the late 19th century. You know, the Quakers operated in a low trust environment, uh, which capitalism was really kind of, it's, it's taking over, but it's highly unregulated. So they mistreat workers, they exploit workers. They adulterate uh, their their products. Uh, for example, they used to put things like sawdust and iron filings into chocolate, you know, to a, to adulterate chocolate. There was no pure, you know, pure food and drug act. You didn't know what you were getting. Uh, you didn't know if people were going to cheat you. There's no c- consumer protection, and a lot of the Quaker-owned businesses became very successful, precisely because in a low trust environment where the establishment was a scam, when the establishment was uh, hurting the people, not helping the people, the Quakers conducted themselves at a different level. So Cadbury chocolate was a Quaker business. And Cadbury Mm. said, no, we're not going to adulterate. Our chocolate is actually real pure chocolate. We treat our workers well. And people decided, hey, you know what? I may not be a Quaker, (laughs) but I want to do business with the Quakers because I know they're not going to rip me off. Mm. And... You know, the, oh, by the way, you know, even if they default on their debts, one of the things they would do sometimes if they defaulted on their debts, the other Quakers would come around them and like make good on their debts and stuff. It's like, these mm-hmm. are the guys you want to do business with. Mm-hmm. And so, we should be those guys. You know, we should be those guys. And that's not to say that we can't continue to politically engage. This is where I think Rod Dreher got in trouble and that people took, although I don't think this is a completely fair and accurate uh, statement of his Benedict Option book, he was perceived as saying, Get out of the politics business. Stop competing to get elected. We should, by all means, continue to play the game that that's in front of us. Uh, I'm just saying you can't just rely on that that go-to move. We're going to put it all on politics because we saw with Trump, he didn't even have people to appoint. I think that's what he was saying too in the Benedict Option. So let me go there for a second to Rod Rod. Dreer and the Benedict Option. One of the things he says is, however, that nothing matters more than guarding the freedom of Christian institutions to nurture future generations of the faith. So he does say, um, pretty much don't count on politics, but please fight this political war, uh, fight for the freedom of institutions to speak what they want to speak and so on. Do you agree that that's got to be a major emphasis going forward? 
Well, again, this is sort of the the David French approach. I mean, I think you know, again, fighting for religious liberty, if you want to call it that, is uh, is important. Um, you know, so I'm not saying don't do that, uh, but you also need to be prepared that they're not going to let you do that. What mm. are you going to do if they they don't let you do that? I mean, so we already saw during COVID, it's like no, your church cannot meet, but yes, pot dispensaries can be open, liquor stores can be open. Strip clubs can even be open, you know. So very clearly, we do not live in a society that David French envisions, in which there are rules that are sort of applied in an even-handed manner. Right. You know, equality before the law. We live in a society in which there are some groups that are favored and some that are disfavored. And if you are somebody they don't like, and I think especially evangelicals are seen as you know, there, there's a particularized animus against them by a lot of people, uh, which is why for some reason you never ever see these, um, you know, kind of gay activist groups try to get an Orthodox Jewish baker or a Muslim baker to bake them a cake. Hmm. They're not interested in that. They're interested in going after evangelicals yes. and ergo, uh, you know, ergo, you know, you're, you're going to get this idea that you can just rely on the rule of law. I mean, the rule of law is basically dead in America. And that's a little bit of an exaggeration, you know, but we see, again, what do we see? The minutiae of the New York Attorney General, who announced during her election campaign that she was going to target Donald Trump. <laughs> you know, now indicting him, we're just going to just go trawl through every single thing. We're going to indict you. We're going to seize your stuff. And then, like, what happened to Hillary Clinton and her laptop? What happened to Hunter Biden and all this stuff? It's like, if you are one of the, it's like, it's, I use the example of, like, you think that you can't depend on the process fairness in America anymore. Hmm. This is what ended up getting, you know, the January 6th people in trouble. Yes. You know, and they thought that, oh, BLM got away with this. You know, all these other people got away with this stuff. Well, why, we can do, we can do what they did. No, you can't. You we know, can't BLM can burn down your city, kill people. Okay, and be rewarded by our society. You know, if you jaywalk, you're going to get the book thrown at you. And so this 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 reliance on process fairness is really a kind of legacy approach. And so while I think you certainly fight for it, and you know, there's there's positive things in the courts to be sure. Uh, you should do that. You should not assume that you're going to get a fair shake. What happens? If they don't, what happens if they do revoke your tax exemption? What are you going to do? Are you thinking about that? What happens if you can't get federal funding for your Christian college anymore? What happens if you lose your accreditation? I'm not saying you need to have a, you know, every detailed contingency plan for everything, but this assumption that you're going to continue to have some sort of process fairness or, you know, I, I think we have to. We, that's that's an assumption that can no longer be the operating one for for institutions today. Hmm. Kind of frightening, but uh, yeah, seemingly yeah. true. Yeah, and again, I, I and part of my and again, part of my whole cultural insurgency thing is I look at the people like J Six, and I say that is a culture war type of move, and it's just a way to kind of get you destroyed in life. That's why I say. I, I strongly advise against stuff like that. I strongly advise against any sort of talk about civil war and national divorce. Anything, anybody who remotely talks about violence, just stay far, far, far away about it. We shouldn't even entertain that kind of rhetoric. But you don't need to paint a target on your back um, by doing something stupid. 
And so I think those are sort of the things that like, you know, we should think about that. Let me just ask you in a broad general way. So, uh, our listeners find themselves a little bit shocked. Here I am in negative world. Man, I never expected this. It came so fast. I didn't see it coming. What do you have to say to them to encourage them, to strengthen them, to help them stand? Yes, I don't believe in what they call in the internet blackpilling or coming up with this kind of nihilistic, fatalistic view of the future. Uh, and, you know, there's there's some book. Uh, it's not called The Last Pagan Generation, but it's something like that. Rod Dreher is very impressed with it. This idea that, like, you know, the pagans in Rome, uh, you know, tried to hold on for, you know, 400s. They're trying to, get to to reinvigorate paganism, but it was hopeless. Paganism was doomed to go extinct, and now Christianity is doomed to go extinct in the West. Well, Christianity might go extinct in the West, certainly possible, but I don't think that's inevitable by any means. Go look at Egypt. Okay? Egypt was conquered by the Muslims in like the 600s or something like that. And you know what? 10% of the population is still Christian. Hmm. Uh, the cops are Christian, and they have been in a deeply hostile environment for well over a thousand years. You know what? They're still there. Like, we're not going in. And, you know, the cops have actually done quite well. I mean, they're very successful overseas, especially. They're economically successful. Uh, a lot of doctors and things of that nature. So, like, the idea that you can't sustain your faith in a hostile environment, uh, I don't I don't agree with that. I think if you look around— uh, there's plenty of examples of people who are who are surviving in very difficult environments. Again, the subtle forms of pressure that are put to bear, you know, through the educational systems and the way that children are brought up, through many many things, are different than you know uh, what we've seen in the past. In some respects, a straightforward military conquest is be easier to understand and respond to than some of these technological infiltrations, for example. Nevertheless, there's no reason to assume fatalistically that it's over. And you know the you know the, the way that American leadership is going, you know, on the current trend, at some point is it's they're going to produce big problems. Now, it might even be within my lifetime, uh, but uh, you know, in the past, we've faced all these challenges, we've been able to overcome them. Today, we have a lot of challenges, and we'll see if our leadership class is up for them. But as they become more explicitly repressive, in a sense, which the, once the sort of soft power idea that we sort of manufacture consent, as Chomsky, uh, Herman and Chomsky said in the 80s, and now we engage in censorship, we engage in firing people, we engage in direct overt hostility against you know half the country. Uh, you know, once you switch into that sort of hard power, I think you know, the clock is ticking on how long you're going to last. Mm. You know, as a sort of free society, America lasted over 200 years, you know, as a, as a uh, political nation. Uh, and I, I think that's highly successful. Look at any authoritarian structure in the world. None of them have lasted. Uh, you know, even the Soviet Union basically lasted, what, 60 years? Maybe only like really when it got repressive, maybe 50, 50-something years before it collapsed. And this was an incredibly successful, uh, you know, kind of repressive system. And obviously, we're not the Soviet Union by any means. Ours is different. But this idea that when you transition into a hard power scenario, I think at some point the clock is ticking on you. So what? a little bit more. Talk a little bit about building arcs. What's that idea? Well, this is the Benedict option idea, the, the idea of building arcs. So if you think society is in decline, 
what do you do? And I've laid out a bunch of different, I just had a, a post on my uh, site about that. And I laid out a bunch of different strategies. You can try to resist, try to reset, try to reform, try to do something to reverse the decline. You know, you can, some people want to accelerate the collapse. That was, of course, the communists. They wanted to accelerate the collapse of capitalism. So they want to accelerate crisis. There's a variety of them. One of them is that called build an arc. And building an arc is a strategy basically says a little bit, I'm checking out of society. I'm turning my back on society and I'm focusing on building structures to help me and my people and what I care about survive as much as possible intact the downturn. And this is really what the Benedict Option is. I mean, uh, Dreer even describes the Benedict Option that way. So let's build local community structures that can sustain the faith through a dark age, if you want to call it that. And even secular people, uh, you know, I just linked to this uh, guy, Venkatesh Rao. He's one of the great insight uh, blogs, Ribbon Farm. He wrote about this, that more and more people are turning away from society and they're like, how do I just keep my little piece of it intact? How do mm -hmm. I focus on this? And so it sounds a little radical, but, uh, you know, in many cases, it's not. Localism is essentially a form of arc building. This idea that, like, hey, let's focus on our actual neighbor. Let's try to help the people in need across the street from us. Let's try to focus on local communities. I think as a sort of an arc motif. It's like the big society is too big. We can't control it. We can't influence it. So let's do what we can, and let's try to, like, improve our little corner of the world and sort of disregard that. Uh, you know, uh, Alistair McIntyre in his, the end of his book, After Virtue, talked about St. Benedict and how he sort of turned his back on Rome and said, Rome is toast. We're not going to try to rebuild Rome. We're going to go build this monastic movement and start something new. And that's the sort of arc built building there. And that's where Dreer got his term Benedict option from. Hmm, yeah. Um, yeah, I want to build arcs. I want to build monasteries right in the middle of culture. I don't want to go out in nowhere like he did. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so those are those are things there, and um, you know, he could have used um, he could have used the uh, 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 the mendicant movements or something that was more engaged in the world. You know, the Franciscans and the Dominicans, rather than the use of the monastery uh, as an image, certainly was one of the reasons that Trier's um, message was not well received so. in certain circles. And prior to the monastery, there was what three years in a cave contemplating what to do. So right. that, that didn't thrill me either. But anyway, <laughs> Aaron, thank you so much for joining me, joining us yeah. today. And uh, thank you listeners for joining us. Um, here's the part where I remind you all that Grounded comes out twice a month. And if you've profited from it, please write us a quick review. We'd appreciate that. So thanks for being here today. See you in two weeks. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you. <laughs>